Hey guys, Eric here, and I want to talk to you real quick about the dailydownforce.com. Every day, this website covers the latest news and trends in NASCAR, from silly season right through the checkered flag in Phoenix. Need a new morning routine as soon as you wake up? Well, now you have it, dailydownforce.com. This is the website I use to keep up with the industry, the drivers, and of course, what the community is talking about. And speaking of community, dailydownforce.com is also home to some of your other favorite NASCAR content creators. Plus, they've got all sorts of information that I like to keep bookmarked, like schedules, penalties, ratings, and everything you want to know. Oh, and be sure to check out the merch shop while you're there to find some exclusive diecasts and collectibles. So check out dailydownforce.com, that's dailydownforce.com, and I'll see you in the replies. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had yeah. been, been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. You know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, dailydownforce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Bought Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item packed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway. 
America's racing show place. You got Kale, Buddy Baker, Richard Penn, AJ Foy, the older guys that will get your butt in a heartbeat for not driving right, for not acting right. It didn't take Tony very long to figure me out, and it didn't take me very long to figure Tony out. If I'd had two things to do different, was it with the laughing early on, but still run together, or wrecking, you know, and I wasn't on wrecking. And I hit him hard. Well, it busted his fuel cell, big explosion. And of course, I was on the brakes that I didn't have, so we hit so hard it broke both my feet. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace, and a track that really does care about NASCAR history. And Steve, before we get started this week, we got to go through a couple of items of housekeeping. First okay. things first, yeah. we are going to finish out the three-episode arc with Rick Wilson with the show that will drop December 1st. So we got this week and then next week with Rick. Right. And we will finish right. that out. Then the week after, you and I are going to do our best of picks for 2021 the following week for the episode that drops December 8th. Now, have you got your picks together for our best content of 2021? Rick, there's so much to pick from. <laughs> I've not been able to choose one yet, but I'm working on it. Then for our last episode of the year that will drop on December 15th, we're going to take the week going into Christmas and the week going into New Year's off, kind of mirroring what we did at scene. At scene, while I was there, we published 50 times a year and then took those two weeks off and then got back at it the week after New Year's. So that's what we're going to do. Right. We're going to take those two weeks off, but we're going to end with a bang. And this I'll is what bet. we're going to do. We've already talked about it on Twitter, so our listeners pretty much already know what it is. But Kyle Petty is going to be joining us to answer our listeners' questions about NASCAR history. And you can't get any better than him, that's for sure. <laughs> I think our listeners know that. Well, that's kind of our gift. That's kind of our holiday gift to our listeners is Kyle Petty. <laughs> now, I don't know that he's going to have a bow on, but that's our gift is for our listeners to be able to ask their questions of Kyle. So if you have a question for Kyle, record a short video on your cell phone or whatever. You can go to a professional studio if you want to, but record a short video, introduce yourself and where you're from, ask your question. And then email either the download link to Dropbox or Google Drive or whatever, or send the file, if it's small enough, to rick at thescenevault.com only. Only. There's a bunch of different ways to get in touch with us. Through Twitter, through our old email address, thescenevault at yahoo.com. Don't go there. Email it just to rick at thescenevault.com. That way I'll have everything in one place. It'll be easier to find and include in the episode. 
I am really looking forward to these questions from our listeners. I'll bet you there's some really good ones in the mix. Now, Steve, if you had a question for Kyle, any question that you could ask Kyle Petty, what would it be? When you're going to cut off that ponytail. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? If we could get in touch with Richard, (laughs) I wonder if that would be Richard's question too. (laughs) Also, one other item that we need to talk about Thursday of last week, we stood right at 9,700 followers on Twitter. We have been slowly gaining followers here and there. I made the challenge that if we could get to 10,000 followers by the end of the year, I would give up Diet Pepsi forever. Rick, that is going to be a major (sighs) sacrifice on your part. You're going to be a different man. Well, Steve, I gave it up one day last week. This past Saturday, I did not have a single Diet Pepsi. Okay. So what was the reaction on your part? (sighs) I'm going to be honest with you. It wasn't bad. As of this morning, when we started recording, we now stand at 9,883 followers. So we've Ah, gained a little over a hundred. We're getting close. In just a couple of days. Well, we're just a little more than 100 away. So this is getting serious. And Steve, we've actually had a couple of folks join in and say that if we made that goal, they would give up their soft drink of choice. Just like you, Rick, they're going to make a major sacrifice. I did have to laugh (laughs) when we got this tweet from Jeff Griffin at not Jeff Griffin. I don't know (laughs) what the story is there, but (laughs) Jeff Griffin tweeted and said, well, I'm torn. I'm a huge fan of the show and want to see it grow as much as possible. But as a sales rep for Pepsi, (laughs) (laughs) I know where this is going. (laughs) I really hate to see us lose such a loyal customer. (laughs) Jeff, I'm sorry, man. (laughs) So Jeff also suggested, how about at 11,000 followers, you start drinking Diet Pepsi again, but increase to two per day (laughs) in order to make up for lost time. Well, Jeff, I'm not exactly sure that's how it's supposed to work. <laughs> well, Rick, I got news for you. Jeff is not the only guy that's highly concerned about what's going on around here. I have a letter here oh, that dear. I have received. I'll read this letter to you. <clears throat> dear Steve, while we appreciate Rick Houston's sacrifice to achieve his goal, we humbly ask that you do not do the same. It would be devastating to us. Our businesses would suffer greatly. Again, we appreciate what Rick is doing, but it is our fervent hope you do not do the same. Sincerely, Jack Daniels and Johnny Walker. (laughs) (laughs) How about that? Well, I was going to say, sign the president of Budweiser USA, but hey. (laughs) Don't worry, boys. Don't worry. (laughs) Oh, dear. Oh, dear. (laughs) Steve, I don't know how to transition from that into talking about our first segment, but let's try it anyway. (laughs) This week in our first segment, 
Rick Wilson talks about his years with Morgan McClure Motorsports and crew chief Tony Glover. He talks about his very close second place finish to Bill Elliott in the 1988 Firecracker 400 at Daytona and what he coulda, shoulda, woulda maybe done differently if he had it to do all over again. And then also he talks about a very bad crash at Richmond that left him with two broken feet and an all-time attempt to race again the next week. That is going to be quite a story. Then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the April 13th, 1989 issue of Grand National Scene. Rusty Wallace has vertigo, but he wins the race anyway. Darrell Walter finishes second despite spinning his brother out. <laughs> Jeff Bodine finishes third despite his crew chief and team manager, Waddell Wilson, getting whacked in the head with a metal pole during a pit stop. Dick Trickle finishes fourth despite not having radio communications with his pit crew. There are 20 cautions in this event. A team does not shut the gate on its hauler when it leaves the racetrack and there's crap flying out of the back of it <laughs> as a result. Rick Wilson wins the rain-delayed Bush Series race, and Rick Mast finishes third despite having the flu, and Dell Earnhardt doesn't want to be there, and he promptly parks his car. Not a very eventful weekend, was it, Rick? <laughs> then on the second page of this issue, <laughs> Steve, that was a packed issue yeah obviously so i mean so much went on that weekend and that race 20 cautions it 20. lasted almost four hours and the winner's average speed was just 76 miles an hour because of all the cautions <laughs> i thought we'd never get out of there steve finally this week we do have new patreon support from carter finch and randy ridgeway and PayPal support from Joe LaJoy. And he made a note when he sent the support that he is not related to Randy. So he felt the need to spell that out. And you know what? I probably would too. <laughs> <laughs> so Carter and Randy and Joe, thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Every time we get new support or increased support, it confirms one more time that Steve and I are doing what we're supposed to be doing and that fans appreciate it. And that means so much to me. That encouragement means so much to me. So if you can, please support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal, support us by dropping a five-star rating and a written review on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you catch us on. If you can do a monthly show of support, you can do that via patreon.com slash the same bot podcast. Or if you would prefer to do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same bot podcast. Rip, I got to interrupt you. I got something here. You know, our buddy, Paul, who makes those donations to us through his beer rebate. Yeah. Paul Friedrich. Yeah, that's right. And I've always asked how in the world. Do you get a beer rebate? Did he get well, in guess, touch with you? Yes, he did. I know how to get a beer rebate now. And I also know how to get a rebate on several other products. Paul tipped me off on how to do it. And here's what's going to happen, Rick. I'm going to go and use my source to get a rebate. And the first rebate I get goes right into 
our podcast. How about that? My Porsche is on order. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Paul. You're a real man. Also, just as a reminder, this show is not affiliated in any way with American City Business Journal's owner of the same brand. Nineteen eighty six Daytona five hundred. You're with a new team, you've got sponsorship, and you finished seventh. Yep, Captain Cody's were their sponsor. In, the, in the in the Daytona five hundred. How big a deal was that to you personally? Was that your welcome to NASCAR moment when you felt like you'd made it? Yeah, that was one of them. Uh, I hadn't really thought I'd made it up until then. I, I was a young guy. I didn't really know. I, I, I knew I could drive a race car, but I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know. I didn't know how. And these guys were running 200 plus mile an hour around here, and I didn't want to cause, which we didn't really have them back then, but a big wreck. But I'll never forget. I was just trying. We start the race. I know we're fast, and I'm just riding, trying to take what I can, what is given me. I'm not trying to take anything. Whatever is given to me, I'll never forget. For the latter part of the race, that's when I really figure out how to draft good because I'm right on Daryl Walters' bump. And Daryl's trusting me. Back then, if you're a young kid, yeah. nobody wanted to draft for you. They'd wave you off, you know, get yeah. away from you. But Daryl was trying to run good. When me and Daryl got hooked up, we started running pretty good. And we were I, back then, we were just in a line, or just me and him, or whoever was running with. And I stayed on his. I said, if I stay on his rear bumper till this race is over with, I will run good because it's Daryl Walter. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I did. Yeah. And I stayed on that bumper and and and. So then when the race was over, next time I seen Daryl, you know, this is Daryl Walter. You know, he says, man, good job. You know, appreciate you doing what you did or not doing what, you know, doing something stupid. We had a good run. And so that was one one of the steps that I had to take to get to where I wanted to be at. Tell me about working with Tony Glover. <laughs> <laughs> that was something I never had before with a crew chief. You know, when – Tony was just, I mean, he's old school. He was old school. He was, you know, confident in what he did. I mean, he just, and, and, and but we were learning also on on the speedways and, and, and cups, you know, run cup. But I'm going to tell you what, me and Tony, it didn't take Tony very long to figure me out, and it didn't take me very long to figure Tony out. I'm a guy that he knew what I wanted. I don't know how he did it, but he knew what I wanted. I didn't have to say nothing. I go out and make a lap, come in. I didn't have to say, Tony, this thing's loose. I can't even drive it. Or Tony, this thing's pushing. Or next. He, 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 you know, we don't get me wrong. We would chat about it. But as the years went on, I didn't have to really tell him nothing. You know, I come in and run decent. I, I got it. I know what you need. And it was just that that personality that we worked together. We, you know, we laughed together. We cried together. I mean, it was. He he was he was he was something that you know. That's probably one of the hardest things I ever did when I left that team. You know, not only that team, but but Tony. You know, God, we just worked so good together, and and that was one of my you know life learning experiences, making decisions on what my future was going to hold. But you know, we can get into that later. But but that me and Tony were friends, and and he was crucial. And and we didn't you know back then he didn't have any. Larry didn't. We didn't have any help. I mean, we had a handful. Might have been four or five. And I remember going to Charlotte. We didn't have a motor program. 
uh, a, you know, a, a full-time motor program, and we were, I think, renting motors or whatever. We blew up like three or four motors in two or three days and wrecked two or three cars. Blowed up going down the front straightaway, wrecked the cars. We didn't have no more cars. Staying up all night trying to get back for the World 600 or whatever it was. And we just worked together. We worked hard. All of us. I was there. I mean, it didn't matter. You know, slinging Bondo, putting motors in, and nobody even thought nothing about it. But we'd do it 24-7. And Larry, everybody. And it was just a family. That's what we did. And, and you know, just trying to run good. Now, I understand that this is a big, open-ended question, but what is your best Tony Glover story about who he was as a person? I understand that he does a mean Tommy Ellis impersonation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, oh, yeah. He did I understand that he's not real big on snakes. Oh, no. <laughs> no, no, he's not big on snakes. So, I, so tell me who Tony, who was the Tony Glover that you knew in we, the holler? We were all, we, we always were pulling pranks on everybody. I mean, as hard as we had to work back then, we had to have some kind of enjoyment, you know. But he was, he, he was real easy to scare. You come up behind him. And, you know, he, he would be always be standing down on pit road or in a corner clocking everybody, you know, when we were kind of down a little bit, clocking everybody. And, and I'd always wait, you know, I'd slip up behind him, and he'd be sitting there clocking them cars would be going by. And I'd wait for one just about to get right in front of him, and he'd turn his head and look at another one, you know, scream and grab him. He'd go ballistic, you know. <laughs> and snakes, you know, rubber snake, oh, my gosh. It was terrible. He was up under a car one day. We, we was somewhere, and I had – that weekend found bought a rubber snake you know he was up under that thing might have been changing the gear or whatever and i just you know hey tom and throw that rubber snake in there time he got out from that thing he was beat all up blood. <laughs> and i get thinking back about it i don't think my car handled that good that <laughs> you know i think he said i'll get you i'll get you but uh i remember one time we were at rockingham and going to the hotel back toward Rockingham there was a filling station there and when I came out that morning I reckon they there was a car they might have had a record service there but there was a car there sitting right out front of the filling station and probably one of the worst wrecks I'd ever seen it was a street car and they'd been in a wreck that thing was almost just completely just a wad of metal there was no way anybody survived that and so I kind of had planned and I was driving the old van and, uh, and another guy there, I said, you see, y'all see that car, you know, when we y'all come in this morning? I, or, and, and, and they didn't. I said, man, there was a wreck down there, so-and-so, and it's terrible. And, and I slowed down, and, I mean, I had it gory. You know, there was, I seen the wreck. People were, you know, hanging out of the cars. And, and you know, and Tony said, good gracious. That, oh, my. Look, I said, look at that thing. And everybody gets about turning their head. That almost to go back around, and I just slam on brakes and scream. And, you know, because like I've hit, oh, my gosh, you know, Tony just, you know, everybody goes, no, that's just how we all did it. And I got, yeah, and I got it put back on me, too. We just, it was very, in a hard situation, because that, that was a lot of hard work back then, yeah. you know, and we, we got through it by enjoying each other. I mean, there's there's a lot of stories I can say, and there's a lot of stories I can't tell you. <laughs> well, it's just between us and a few thousand listeners. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it, it was it was really good. It was good. You said that it got put back on you. What's the best one that got put back on you? Uh, yeah, I'm not a big fan of snakes either. Uh, but crawl down in the – might have been at the shop. Might not have been at the racetrack. Crawl down in the race car, maybe put some belts in there or something, and they'd wrap the big old snake, rubber snake around the roll bar. 
and uh, so I'm sitting there. I'm all in there, and I'm and so getting everything set, steering wheel, and of course I'm going to look up in the mirror and see how I look out the back, you know. Look up there, and there's that snake sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing happened to yeah. me. Uh, but uh, it was just, it was, it was great, you know. As time went on, there seemed to be a certain sense of friendship that developed amongst a small group of the drivers. I think there was you. Mike Waltrip and Kyle Petty. I mm-hmm. think maybe Brett Bodine was in there. Mm-hmm. Harry Gant yeah. was was in there a little bit. Uh, is there anybody else that miss it? Was there a, a a particular group that you remember hanging? Phil Parsons. He Phil was Parsons. In yeah, okay. he was in there. How did that develop? How how did that happen? You know, I, I reckon uh, other than Harry, they had a deal. Uh, Might have been on in 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 the Grand National scene back then. They they did a picture and, and it was me. Michael, Phil, Mark Martin. I can't remember. They called us the Young Guns. Yeah. And and we were the younger guys, kind of. And we were just, you know, and, and let me tell you something. When you got Kale, Buddy Baker, <laughs> Richard Petty, A.J. Foy, the older guys that will get your butt in a heartbeat, you know, for not driving right, for not acting right, you know, we kind of hung together because we didn't, you know, I mean, we had to kind of team up ourselves. It wasn't teaming against the old guys, but, I mean, I mean, it was just, that, I reckon, that gap. But we become good, all of us become good friends. And, uh, you know, we hung out at the racetrack or away from the racetrack when we weren't practicing. We were in the haulers. It was just, we had camaraderie. You know, I mean, it was just talking about how we were doing, trying to help each other. And uh, it just totally... I would say different than anything that goes on now. I mean, I mean, we weren't hiding stuff. If one of us wasn't running good, we wanted to see somebody run good. You know, it was just in that group. Now, if you wasn't in that group, we wanted to see you run bad. You know? <laughs> but, you know, it's just I mean, weekends or when we were off, which wasn't very often, you know. I never played golf, but we also tried to t- take up trying to play golf because, of course, on – Go to these, some of these racetracks, you know, the towns and the sponsors wanted you to play golf, and we tried to take that sport up, and we got where we could, you know, play pretty good because we kind of goes back to the racing part. There's two kind of racers. There's cheaters and losers. And, <laughs> and, and, and in golf, we kind of figured out <laughs> to be, you know, just be respectable, you know. But uh, but we just – I mean, it was good. It, it was. I mean, if – if, if 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 it doesn't go on now, which I don't know, I'm sure that it does. It, it, people are missing a lot of you know a lot of fun, but people are different. You know, we were it was just a different time, and uh, we we had to look at things and work to get where we're at a different way, and uh, and we would do whatever it took. But we were all good friends. Yeah. You know, I, don't get me wrong. We've been a many time. I got cussed. I cussed one. You know, and you know, and wouldn't talk for two or three days. But it always come back around. You know, hey, I'm sorry. Yeah, you know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, I was going to ask. There's there's friendship off the racetrack, but when you get on the racetrack, what did it mean for the competition? It was pretty much all out. On, yeah. uh, I mean, you know, you might let you, you know, if your buddy gets stuck out there, and if it's early in the race, and your buddy gets, I'm just, I'll go back to a speedway, gets stuck out of the draft, and. You know, like back then we didn't have, you know, we were just getting into restrictor plates, so we were still mowing straight lines. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you let your buddy in, you know, and that, you know, because you knew that would come back around, you know, to help you. But uh, but when it come down to the end of the, the, the deal, it was on, and everybody knew that. 
I mean, we were all hungry, hadn't won no races. You know, we'd all run good, but we wanted to, you know, win races and make our mark. We hadn't done that. And, uh, but we all just helped each other as, you know, as much as we could because the rest of the older guys, they would not, they, they didn't. They'd slam a door on you or whatever. So it was, uh, it was, it was good. Sitting here in your office, uh, I think it's interesting, your decor, all kinds of racing pictures, but one in particular kind of jumps out at me. It's the, it's the photo of, Richard Trek from the 88 Daytona 500. Yeah. And I don't know that I realized that you were so close to it until I, I saw that That picture is a million words right there. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it felt a lot closer than that when it when it happened. But, you know, that was, uh, that was a heck of a wreck. You know, and that's one Richard went through. And he got, you know, he got hurt. You know, not real bad, but broke his ankles, I think, yeah, or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And, t- you know, just tumbling down the racetrack. And then I think Brett hit him. Uh, I think it was Brett. I'm not yeah, sure after he stopped. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, it was uh, that was one of those days that we were, you know, all – that was back before much restrictor plates, and we were running. You know, I mean, it was fast. And uh, I think uh, Phil – I think it was Phil Bartdolf got loose and, and touched uh, Richard, and then it just – it took off. And that's one of the deals right there. It could have got really bad because he went down through the fence. Thank gosh for the, the you know, the cables holding everything out because we could have had a bad scene there. But – uh, we all got out of it pretty good, but but it was a uh, and somebody took that shot, and it's been I've seen it all around, and I was very fortunate. I knew right then I love that picture, so I got everybody to sign it, and uh, I've had it ever since. Now you did sit on the pole that spring at Bristol in Morgan McClure's backyard. Right. What was the team's reaction to doing so well so close to home? Oh, that was that was a big deal, uh, and I've always had a good deal with. Bristol for some reason when I drove uh, for Charlie Henderson you know in the bush car you know we won Bristol but but when sitting on the pole there meant a bit a big a lot because Morgan McClure that's her hometown I mean everybody you know uh, there in Abington right down the road uh, that's when the tire wars were going on between Hoosier and Goodyear and uh, it was uh, it was great to sit on the pole it was a team booster but I don't think we ran that good in the race but uh, but sitting on the pole was a good deal, you know, and, and it just it, it, it makes you feel good, you know. And that was one of them deals. I love Bristol Racetrack. I love running the race there, but I always go back to to what Kyle used to say. Probably the, what they need to do is fill it up with water and put fish in it, <laughs> because it's hard hard on a, on a driver. Yeah, hard hard hard. Uh, especially back in the day, we didn't have a lot of driver comfort deals back in the day, and uh, but you know it. it, it it separated the men from the boys, and uh, and uh, but I, I do, did love it and do love it. Got the got the opportunity to go back, I don't know, seven or eight years ago when they had the Legends race, you know, the old guys, yeah, yeah. and won it. Yeah. And, uh, and then that's when uh, Pearson got hurt, and I think they quit having them. But yeah. So they had that two times. Sterling won one time, and I won the next time. So yeah. that, that was good. That was good. So 1988 Daytona Firecracker 400, <clears throat> you and Bill Elliott. Going in turn three, you're right on his bumper, and Dale looks like he's going to go low, and you you kind of block him a little bit, or you you go low too. What do you remember about that last lap or mm. two or three? Oh, I remember. You know, it's I remember that day we had the car to beat. We were real fast. Uh, we you know just had a great race car. Tony and everybody had gave me a good race car. I remember. I don't know. It was halfway through the race, 
maybe a little before the race, uh, Bill Elliott was, and he, he'll tell you, was running his worst that he's ever run at Daytona. He, he was bad. I mean, but I had run, I, I was lapping him. And it set up where he was, I think we're on the back straightaway, and I just kind of pulled in behind him, and, and we kind of, I, you know, I forget why, but I said, I'm just going to sit here, run through the corner with him, or run a lap behind him, and then I'm going to pass him and go on. And when I pulled in behind him, I seen my RPMs on my, my car just jump up. <laughs> and his did too. And the next thing I know, we are the fastest thing there. The race kept going on. I get with somebody else, wouldn't do it. Would not do it. It didn't matter if I was in front or was he, he was in back. So we pretty much figured out, me and Bill, you know, could, uh, uh, you know, dominate this thing or be there at the end if we keep our nose clean. And uh, what I should have done right then was probably went ahead and lapped him. And, and you know, always think back. Yeah. But, but anyway, but we ran the whole day back and, you know, me leading, him leading. And uh, I can remember we, it got down to the end of the race. Uh, he was leading. And it wasn't, it wasn't no problem for me to pull out and go by him. Dale, I don't know if he was running third. I think he was running fourth. I'm not sure. And, and Dale was no good either, had not been good all day. And, and he didn't have nothing to lose. So we're coming down the back straightaway, and he jumps out early. You know, if he just stayed in line, well, I had to make a decision, you know, go higher. And, and, but here he comes. He had a run, so I had to go down. And then, you know, the rest of it was history. You know, he beat me by 18 inches or whatever Bill did. But uh, if I had it do over again, I'd probably wreck him going down the front straight away. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we touched a few times just, you know, and him pushing on me yeah, and he beat yeah, me. But had yeah. it do over again, yeah, I'd wreck his ass. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and he okay, knows it too, I right. told him. <laughs> did, did you know who had won? No. As, as, no. When you crossed I, the strike? I, I thought I might have won. Yeah. But, you know, when you got a dominant car, you know, I could go, I could pass anytime I wanted to. Yeah. And, uh, but they had to, you know, it took a little bit. I remember riding, going down the back straightaway, you know, who won, who won? And uh, then they said, you know, he won. Or I think we might have got back to pit road before we knew. Because back then, I I think it took a little bit for them to, yeah. you know, to get the picture up and everything. Yeah. And, uh, but, hey, it was good, though. I, I, you know, you always wish you had that back. There's, there's a bunch of them I wish I had, you know, but, uh, uh, that was, you know, you get beat by Bill Elliott. At, I mean, we went to Talladega the next race. Uh, we, we figured it out. Okay, we took the cars back home, cleaned them up, took the motors out, rebuilt them, right back to work, put them back together. They sit there to Talladega come up. We went to Talladega and said, we think we clean these boys' clock. Got Talladega, got, went, set it up, went out, went and running. Wouldn't do it. Would not. And we, we never could understand that. Wow. So, but, uh, but it was, you know, and, and that's when Bill was really running fast and running yeah. good. So you get outrun by Bill Elliott. I mean, heck, he's a great guy. And, and I, you know, me and him were friends too. And it's just, you know, it was good. It was a good day at racetrack. Loved to have won it, but I didn't run second. I was going to ask, going back home that night or whenever you went back home, were you disappointed or were you content? I was probably disappointed. I I, I left the racetrack, went straight to to, to uh, uh, where, where I went and ran a race that night in Florida, and that took took it off my mind a little bit. Uh, it was South Florida. That's when we were having those uh, uh, all star races. 
remember the cup drivers would go run races. Yeah, yeah, you know, and yeah. I was I love that. That's how, and that's another how we all as younger guys become friends too, because we did a lot of those. But that night, you know, like I said, I should have just uh, had I could have if I'd had two things to do different was with lapping early on, but still run together, and he'd have been hard to keep lap down. But or wrecked him, you know, and I wasn't gonna wreck him, you know. I mean, back, you know, we just. Uh, and, it, and you know which way Dale jumped Dale jumped to the inside I had went to the inside to block him because I knew I had enough momentum to go by him if Dale went to the outside I went to the outside and I probably had more momentum just like Bill did to go by me go by him so it's heck what the heck you just do what you can when you run that fast and Daytona you you don't have a lot of time to think about what you're going to do react on them yeah. things you just got to react and hope it works out 1989 you did win a couple of Bush Series races with Charlie Henderson's team, yep. I believe at Bristol and Dover. Yeah. How big of a confidence boost did that give you? Oh, that was big. That was big. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd always had run good at a lot of tracks, but just couldn't couldn't put seal the deal. Had a lot of mechanical problems and wrecked a lot. You know, learning. And uh, but winning that Bristol race there for Charlie and uh, and Chris Carrier. Chris Carrier, the crew chief on Charlie's car for me then, and you know. That's Chris Carrier and Tony Glover, the best two crew chiefs that's ever walked down the pike. You know that I work with. Yeah. And, and I mean, I work with some good ones, but 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 we won that race for Charlie there. I mean, that was it was on Monday. It got rained out, cold, and uh, me and Mark Martin we were up after. Matter of fact, had a caution there at the end, maybe ten to go. Had a restart, spun the tires. Mark got by me. Ten laps to go, you, you know. And it's not easy to drive back by Mark Martin, you know. Yeah, and uh, yeah. But I drove back by him and, and won the race, and uh, that was a big confidence builder for me. And uh, you know, and that season there, we should have won three or four more races, but we had mechanical problems, failures, and stuff. But we, it was really good that season, and uh, just a great team there. And uh, you know, they still there. You know, they're probably one of the oldest teams out there. Uh, they got a truck now; they're running, and. Uh, and Chris is there. You know, Chris made his – Chris ran around. You know, he did some uh, cup and went worked for Penske and he worked for uh, Larry for a long time. But, you know, but he's back, you know, doing that and, and enjoying every – me and him talk a lot. Yeah. And he's enjoying every minute of it. We were talking before we started recording, but you did mention a, an accident that you got into at Richmond mm-hmm. uh, with Butch Miller, and it was on the cover of scene. A lot of fire, man. Yeah. A lot of fire. And you wound up – Get hurt mm-hmm. pretty seriously. What what happened? What do you remember? Uh, run out of brakes. Uh, I, I, I remember that uh, we were all up in the race. We were running good, and me and Daryl Walter ran out of brakes. So we back then, you know, we run for points. You just didn't quit. You know, might have been stupid for not quitting because we didn't have no brakes. Grant me, we were coming in trying to fix it, but we just running in the back, trying to stay on the lead lap. And Daryl and me had good enough cars where we could just. If nothing bad happened, we could stay on the lead lap or close to it. And uh, so me, he knew I didn't have any brakes. I knew he didn't have any brakes. And uh, so we were just running by ourselves, stay away from everybody. Well, might have been uh, something might have happened to Butch or whatever. But it was a, it was a night race, and we run down the back straightaway. And I'm pretty close to uh, to Daryl, and Butch had spun out going into three and four. And I don't think the spotters had hollered yet, but it was down back when you really couldn't see good. When you went down the corner, they were over by them tires coming up off of there. And Daryl seen him first, and 
I'm right behind Daryl, look, basically looking through Daryl's windshield, driving, my, you know, and Daryl just takes a dead right. There's Seth Butch, stopped oh. right there yeah. in the middle of the racetrack. And I, no break. I didn't even have time to even turn, and I hit him hard. Well, it busted his fuel cell, big explosion. And, of course, I was on the brakes that I didn't have, so I'm pushing down on them. Yeah. So we hit so hard, it broke both my feet. Both of them. Both of them. And uh, so – and that's when we were, uh, I was telling you, that's when me and Harry were flying together. I think Harry had a broke foot too, but I went to the hospital and uh, thank God Butch was okay. Uh, the fire didn't burn me. Nobody got burnt, but it was a big fire. Cause yeah. like I say, it was on the cover. It was impressive and uh, <laughs> uh, broke both my feet. And, uh, you know, that's, but I'm, I'm on a, I'll tell you what happened. The next week we had to run it over. And, but there, uh, uh, Harry had had a broke foot and, uh, or something was broke on him, but now don't gloss over Harry yanking your chain a little bit. Yeah, well, I was... <laughs> but anyway, I get I, you know I go to the hospital. You know, I'm there for an hour or two. I'm flying. Me and Harry, I fly with Harry on his plane, so he's waiting on me. He's about as patient as uh, he ain't. So I stay at the hospital for two or three hours and get my X-rays, and they put casts on my feet. I mean, it's bad. Give me a pair of crutches, and I don't know how to use crutches. So finally. They bring me to the airport, and there's Harry standing in the plane shaking his head, you know. Come on, we're going to go. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm hurting, the, you know. The, the, no give, sympathy. Yeah, no sympathy. <laughs> and, you know, oh, my gosh, you got a hurt little foot, you know. So there he was. He had a cast on foot. So when I'm walking by him, I just stick the crutch right on his foot, you know. <laughs> brr, you know, and he's – but anyway. But I get I get home, and here I'm sitting here. I, we got to run Dover next week. And, uh, you know, that's back when – you just didn't miss the races. Yeah. You know, you did not miss a race. And uh, so I'm sitting here thinking, what am I going to do? I can't drive Dover with two casts on my feet. And so uh, I get this bright idea. You know, I mean, I was talking with Larry. I think Larry had already told me that he got, got Tommy Ellis was going to drive the car. And I said, well, get, get Tommy, but don't, don't, don't get all excited right yet. I go right down from where I live there. At, uh, I live right there in, uh, right off of Lake Norman there on uh, – What's the name of that town? Huntsville? No, uh, Huntersville. Huntersville, yeah, Huntersville. Yeah, I, li- yeah. I, had, I lived there in Huntersville. And back then, there was the only thing that was there, wasn't much there back then, but there was a roses store. So the next morning, I get up, get my crutches, and I here I go. I had an idea. So I go down to the roses store, and I go into the shoot section, and and uh, there there they were. You remember those uh, red ball G- uh, jet tennis shoes? Yeah. You know, they had the big, thick soles. They used them for basketball. Yeah. And, and you lace them up. You know, they're high tops. So I buy me a pair of them, and I throw them in my car, and I go down to Dick Hutcherson's shop, and I get them shoes out and get over on the bandsaw, and I saw the soles off of them. And I go over, and I, I take that sole and put it on a piece of quarter-inch aluminum, trace it out. <laughs> I saw, I, I cut them out. I put my shoes all back together and pop rivet them and tape them and glue them and put them on. And hey, still got cast on my feet. No, no, excuse me. I said, well, i got to try these on. So I get the ziz wheel, cut the cast off my feet. Put, put you them, cut the cast off yep, your own. Put tennis shoes on, lace them up tight enough where I could stand it without crying. And uh, stand up, and they keep my, that aluminum. I can't, uh, you know, my foot's flat. I look like an elf walking around. I said, I called Larry up. I said, hey, bud, I'm good to go. I said, you bring Tommy. Oh, we're going to bring Tommy. I said, no, I'm going to drive this race car. We got it. So... I go to Dover, got Tommy Ellis there. We uh, 
I'm good. I get out. I'm practicing. We're bad fast. So, race starts. I uh, run probably halfway through the race. This is one time I did cuss Tony. Uh, he run me out of gas. I was leading the race. Dale Earnhardt was running second. Run me out of gas. Come in. Time we got it fired, got it out. We were two or three. No, we don't take long to get down there. Yeah, yeah. So I said, okay, you can put Tommy in here now. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I get out of the car, and I'm not kidding you. I'm all pumped, adrenaline, you know, my feet ain't brother. But anyway, everybody got, Larry got laughing at my look down. And my right foot, I looked like an elf shoe. That aluminum had bent where I was pushing on that throttle so hard. And, I mean, just like that. And that quarter-inch aluminum, I bent it straight up. And, uh, but run the race, I mean, we wound up, you know, with Tommy finished, and we finished in the, you know, probably top ten. But, but that was that was from the wreck at Richmond. I mean, it was it was tough. Do you still have those shoes? No. The, no. Those belong in the NASCAR Hall yeah, of Fame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, I, you know, back then you just thought of what you had to do. How did it not broil your feet? The, the metal on the metal of the floor. Oh, I probably have. Well, back then we used to put wood down there. Uh, back when we, we had uh, plywood we'd put on the, in the floorboard and yeah. it would, the heat wouldn't transfer through the metal. This is before we had all this fancy stuff, you know. So, but I'm sure I mean, it didn't boil my feet, uh, but I didn't, have, I didn't have racing shoes on. But heck, back then, I mean, it's like uh, a lot of people didn't wear racing shoes, you know. They wore, who was it, uh, wore, uh, you know, just regular street shoes, you know, racing. So even, in, even in our era, you know, we had yeah. all the good stuff, but a lot of people still didn't use it. So this was a pair of basically Chuck Taylors that you that you yep. got it yep. at the store. You cut the bottoms off of them. Yeah, had big old thick soles, rubber soles. Okay, and and then you 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 took, took the rubber soles off. I mean, cut them off. So there's a rubber sole. Put it off. Now trace it out on a quarter inch loop. Yeah. So then you know it's, it's kind of like an insert. Yeah. Okay. Then I put the aluminum, uh, pop ribbed it to the to the shoe. <laughs> And then pop ribbed the, the, the bottom of the sole to the aluminum or whatever I did, glued it to, and I was good to go. I mean, that was... Okay, so ba- so basically you, you all you did was add the piece of aluminum yeah, yeah. and then and then put the bottom of the shoe back on. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, all right, yeah, yeah, I got yeah. you. Yeah, okay. I, had my, I had my bottom of the, the sole on there, just had that big aluminum in there. So when I walked, you know, my, my, t- you know, my feet wouldn't move. I mean, it just it kept on steel, just like the cast. Somewhere at your house, you've got those. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> Let's go. We gotta find them. <laughs> I mean, you know, back then you wouldn't believe some of the stuff people did when they got. Oh yeah. I, mean, yeah. I mean, you probably do. You've heard the yeah. stories. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like Larry, uh, Harry. Well, you know, he broke his leg. You know, he couldn't he couldn't push the clutch, so he put a hand clutch in it. You know, so he could he had a big old bar or he pull it put it in gear and take off. Wow. And uh, shoulders getting broke. I mean, just different era this segment is brought to our listeners by las vegas motor speedway america's racing show place as the 1986 season began a couple of things were playing into rick wilson's favor one he was finally in a fairly stable ride And that ride wound up with sponsorship from Kodak. And of course that was Morgan McClure Motorsports. So Rick didn't have to worry quite so much about chasing money to go race. Also, number two, he had Tony Glover in his pits calling the shots. That might be even better. 
<laughs> well, Tony's dad was late model sportsman legend Gene Glover. So Tony was basically born with grease under his fingernails. Tony Glover was a good old boy from Kingsport, Tennessee. Rick Wilson was a good old boy from Bartow, Florida. And they just seemed to click. That led to a little more confidence on the racetrack for Rick. He finishes seventh in the Daytona 500 that year. And during the race, he gets hooked up with Darrell Waltrip. And he decides that he's not going to leave Darrell if he can possibly help it. Now, he's learning from a veteran there. And that's, that's right. a that's smart a, move on Rick. That's part. exactly why he did it, to learn. He's going to follow Darrell to see what he can pick up. He gets a seventh place finish. Darrell finishes third. And the next week, Darrell basically tells him, good job, kid. So when you get a pat on the back from somebody of DW stature, really meant something. It boosts the driver's confidence to have a response like that from a veteran. We could just about do a separate podcast on practical jokes that have been played in NASCAR over the years. And we've talked about different practical jokes many times here on the show. And Morgan McClure Motorsports was no different. Tony would be watching practice time in other cars and Rick would sneak up behind him, wait for him to turn his head the other way and then just yell and grab him. And of course that would shake Tony out of his <laughs> shoes. <laughs> Tony was not a big fan of snakes and Tony was under the car changing the gear or something. And Rick threw a rubber snake under the car. And by the time that Tony had flown out from underneath the car, <laughs> he was all beaten, scraped up and everything looked like he'd been the street brawl or whatever. But Rick said that his car didn't handle too well <laughs> after that. And Tony was like, okay, you got me. I'm going to get you back twice. Rick, that's a case of bad timing right there. <laughs> you talked about the Bud Moore crew and rubber snakes a couple of weeks ago and talking to Rick about his and Tony's fear of snakes brought to mind my first year covering the Bush series, Johnny Chapman. Now that's not a name that a lot of people are going to know. And if they do know Johnny's name, they know him from the dash series being a champion there. And then later on, he got into some starting park roles with different teams, but Johnny Chapman is one of my all time favorite people. In sport, he is just a good, good guy. Now, as a side note, I don't know that a lot of people know this. His son plays baseball for Wingate University, and Wingate just won the NCAA Division II National Championship in baseball. Wow, I bet you Johnny's one proud papa. Oh, man. yeah, you better believe it. <laughs> well, anyway, Johnny Chapman, he hated snakes. <laughs> oh, no. So I got myself a rubber snake one day at Daytona and I put it in the seat of his car. And that was all she wrote on that one. Johnny started to get in the car. He saw the snake jumped about 10 feet in the air, was stumbling over jack stands, tires, whatever was laying around trying to get away. Now it was at that point when I thought to myself, what if he breaks his leg? <laughs> trying to run from that stupid rubber snake. And there's no argument. It would have been my fault. Well, a bigger concern of yours might've been what happens if he gets a hold of me and breaks my leg. <laughs> That's the way you should have been thinking. 
Of course, I can't talk about practical jokes on this show and not mention Buckshot Jones. And we have talked about his illegal car, the birthday cake, the whipped cream pie before, but I had a couple other things to do to him that I ultimately didn't. Well, I think there's a good move on your part. I know that this probably surprises you, but a voice of reason kind of rang into the back of my head a little bit. I kind of thought to myself, Rick, you better think about this. I know that that shocks you that I had a voice of reason. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my first thought, I was going to go to the grocery store and get a few cans of sardines and empty all of that liquid into the seat and floor pan of his car Oh, during the summer when it would have been good and aromatic. Oh, Oh, well, Steve, I decided against that because I was not going to take a chance on actually impacting the outcome of a race. If I'd done that, he would have smelled it (laughs) and either gotten sick or pitted to see what the stink was. And that would have been on me and that would not have been appropriate. So I thought twice about that. Okay. I think that was a good move Eric. (laughs) Well, (laughs) Uh (laughs) the other one was at Dover where there was that glass enclosed walkover bridge there in turn two. I was walking into the track one morning over that bridge practice. had already started. And Buckshot was the only car on the track. The thought actually crossed my mind and I had my hand on my belt buckle. No, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) I was going to moon Buckshot Jones when he came back around in that glass enclosed walkover gate. If you had actually dropped your trousers up there, you would not have mooned him. Not with your butt. You would have Jupitered him. (laughs) Gotta go bigger than that. (laughs) I decided against that one because if he had actually seen my big old hind end, he would have wrecked. Don't question my mind. He would have wrecked, and it would have been my fault. (laughs) Okay. All right. I don't, again, I don't know how we go on from there, but in the late 1980s, there was a group of drivers that developed and they were kind of a early version of the young guns. It was Rick Wilson, Kyle Petty, Michael Walter, Brett Bodine, Phil Parsons. And I don't know how Harry Gant got in this group, but Harry <laughs> Gant definitely was not one of the young guns. He sure did act like it sure did drive like it, but there was a click of drivers that developed yeah. and they weren't kids by any means. They were all probably in their late twenties to early thirties. But there seemed to be this line in the sand that was developing between veteran drivers like Richard Petty, Buddy Baker, Bobby Allison, Kel Yarbrough, and the guys that I just mentioned, the, the younger guys and Harry. According to Rick, true friendships developed among these drivers. Well, I'll tell you what, Rick, uh, we took notice of it too, and we did a piece in Grand National Illustrated, the sister publication to scene, and we actually called it Young Guns. Because we could see the transitioning begin from the drivers that were dominant in the late 70s and early 80s to this new wave of drivers who were starting to take over. In fact, in 1988, 
three top drivers retired as a unit almost. And that moved these guys up higher on the ladder. And it was going to be that way almost to the early 90s. 1988 Firecracker 400. Rick Wilson is fast. Bill Elliott has a terrible qualifying run and starts 38. He can't draft around anybody. And by the time the second caution comes out on lap 111 for Ken Reagan's spin in turn two, Bill is just about to go a lap down to Rick. And Rick sees him, gets in behind him, and doesn't lap him. Hmm. That will come into play later. Yes, it will. (laughs) After the caution, Bill Elliott is able to run with the leaders, and he gets help from Rick Wilson. Bill said in the July 7th, 1988 issue of Grand National Scene, this probably would have been our issue of the week this week, but we had already used it when we had Larry McClure on last year. And Bill said in this issue, the only time my car would run was when I drafted with the four car, meaning Rick. Our cars just worked well together. That happens. For some reason, you can hook up with another car and both of you run good. At other times, you're with another car and you just can't handle. My car was working good in the corners anyway, and Rick's helped it down the straightaways. That was an early sign, I believe that Morgan McClure cars were going to be tough at Daytona. Rick ran very well that time out, and I think later, Ernie Irvin won for him, and I know Sterling Martin did twice in a row for Morgan McClure. So that team was very good at Daytona. All these years later, Rick said essentially the same thing as Bill had said in this issue. He'd get behind Bill, and all of a sudden, his engine jumps an RPM, and they were hauling the butt around the track together. Well, hindsight being 2020, 33 years later, Rick admits that he should have gone ahead and lap Bill with no lucky dog or whatever. It was going to be a lot harder to get a lap back unless I guess you had Ronnie Thomas (laughs) (laughs) stopping on the track to bring out a caution at just the right time. Yeah, I said it. (laughs) That last lap was a thing of absolute Super Speedway racing beauty. Dell Earnhardt dove low going into turn three. Rick went down to block the move, and he gets this huge run on Bill going through turns three and four and coming off the last corner to the checkered flag. They're actually beating and banging a little bit, and Bill does wind up winning officially by three feet. And if you look at the video, it looks a lot closer than three feet. It, it sure does. It was a terrific finish. And there were a fair amount of folks hoping that Rick could win. It's one thing to have an old veteran win another race, another race again, I might add. But it's always refreshing to see someone unexpected to take the victory. And that would have been the case here. And Steve, that's nothing against Bill Elliott. No, no, no. Absolutely, positively, nothing against Bill Elliott. You don't root against him, but Bill Elliott had been there and done that. Right. Many, many times on super speedways, especially, had Rick Wilson won that race, it would have been a different kind of story. It would have been new. It would have been fresh, and there would have been a ton of excitement there. Absolutely. And, you know, not that the press necessarily has to support any driver, which it really doesn't, but thinking about the story that he could write after that 500 if Rick had won it. It would have been terrific. It's all about the story. 
1989, Rick wins a couple of Bush Series races, one at Bristol, the other at Dover, which gives him a shot of confidence. Now, we're going to talk about the first of those wins in our second segment. And you and I have joked over the years about the Bush Series. (laughs) But in all seriousness, what does a win in that division do for a driver who has maybe been struggling a little bit over on the cup side? Now, I'm talking about Bobby Hillen winning Bush races. Michael Waltrip winning Bush races, Morgan Shepard, Jimmy Spencer, Harry Gant, Del Jarrett earlier in his career when he was struggling to find his footing in the Cup Series. What does that kind of win in the Bush Series say for a driver who's been struggling on the Cup side? First of all, it boosts his confidence tremendously because it tells him that he can win. And it also does a few other things. Cup teams also recognizes he can win. So let's either one, take a chance on him, or two, let's work harder to help him win because he's shown us he can drive, he can win. Now, maybe there's something we have to do at our end to make him better. Let's do that. Well, it can show the world that the driver can be competitive in the right situation, but maybe more importantly, it reaffirms for that driver the very same thing. Yeah, exactly. And that's my point. That's a shot of confidence that's worth its weight in gold in a lot of cases. The cover photo on the September 14th, 1989 issue of Winston Cup scene is probably one of the most dramatic that the paper ever ran. Rick's car is completely engulfed in flames during a wreck at Richmond, and there's a ton pouring out of the back of Butch Miller's car, and Rick described that so vividly in the interview Rusty Wallace won the race and there's an inset photo of him completely exhausted, sitting down in victory lane with one of his crewmen pouring water down his back. So that was a tough day at Richmond in a lot of different ways. And Steve, I don't much like to remember that day myself. That race was held on the day of my mom's burial service in East Tennessee. And that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) That's all you need to say. But here is what it means to be a racer. Rick Wilson had pretty much lost his brakes when the accident happened, but that didn't stop him from mashing down on the pedal as hard as he possibly could, apparently with both feet, when he saw Butch's car sitting in the middle of the track. The fire was one thing, and he apparently didn't get injured by the fire, didn't get burned or anything, but Rick broke both of his feet in the accident. He goes to the hospital and he has to have casts put on both feet and he's having to deal with crutches. He finally gets back to the airport and he's supposed to fly home with Harry Gant and Harry ain't happy (laughs) (laughs) about having to wait on Rick. He ain't acting like he's happy. I'm sure Harry understood the situation because he's been injured himself more than once, but he's just acting the part. Come on, man. We got to go. Rick gets back home and Larry McClure is talking about putting Tommy Ellis in the car at Dover and no racer ever wants to see somebody else in the seat of their car. No, not at all. That's one thing they really don't like. You're about to tell us how far (laughs) a driver will go to save his seat in the car. Steve, this is one of the all time efforts by a driver to stay in his race car. 
Rick goes down to his local Rose's department store and he gets himself a pair of what I guess amounted to Chuck Taylor basketball shoes. He takes a bandsaw and cuts the soles off, braces the soles on a piece of aluminum, cuts them out. He pieces the shoes back together with aluminum soles. He cuts his casts off, put the shoes on, ties them up as tight as he possibly can. And that is how he ran the race at Dover the next week. Of course, he's still walking on the crutches, but I can just see him with the solid metal of that aluminum. He must've looked like Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> well, he, <laughs> didn't care how, he didn't care how he looked. That's one of the best examples I've heard of a driver doing so much to keep driving that race car going way beyond what you would think is a reasonable expectation. I mean, we've talked about Ricky Rudd showing up at Richmond for a race with his eyes taped open and a flak jacket on after a terrible wreck at Daytona and winning that race at Richmond. Well, this is another driver attempting to do the very same thing. Rick qualified 20th for the next race at Dover, but had made his way into the top five before turning his car over to Tommy on lap 160. I think they got a lap down or a lap or two down when Tony ran Rick out of gas and Rick wasn't happy about that still more than 30 years later. But sure enough, just like Rick said, there's a small photo of him in next week's issue of Winston Cup scene sitting in a director's chair after getting out of the car and the toe of his right shoe is pointed straight up from the metal. <laughs> <laughs> And where he's been mashing on the gas, that is as hard a core story as we have heard on this show about a driver just desperately trying to stay in a race car. And to think that the way you could recognize how desperately he tried to stay in that race car and how hard he drove it and mashing the gas, that toe probably ought to tell you everything about it. And I made the comment to Rick, can you imagine how hot that must've been on his foot? That must have been like a grill. Oh, I'm telling you, you're exactly right. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace. And the April 13th, 1989 issue of Winston Cup Scene covered that year's Bristol Spring Race Weekend. And the day before the Valleydale meets 500, Rusty Wallace is battling vertigo due to an inner ear infection. Now, we've already talked about the great lengths drivers will go to to race their cars, stay in that car. You don't think vertigo is going to bother Rusty Wallace at Bristol at all, do you? I cannot think of another track where I would not want to have vertigo and try to go racing. Oh, I other than Bristol, you. I agree with you, but it's not going to stop him. There was only one round of practice for this race. It was cold and rainy and rusty wound up damaging the back of his car. When he looped it and backed into the wall on a damp track that damaged the right rear sheet metal and the section of the rear end frame that held the fuel cell. Rusty said, we cut away the damaged sheet metal and brought in a piece that we just pop riveted to the rear end this morning. We painted it, and from a few feet away, <laughs> you could hardly tell it had been damaged. 
the race got started and the blue max Pontiac is struggling. So the crew makes changes, the stagger wedge springs, tires, whatever. And it wasn't just rusty and blue max teams up and down pit road. were swapping back and forth between Goodyear and Hoosier in the midst of the tire war. Rusty said, we used both brands and man teams were changing back and forth like crazy. We started on good years and took them off and put on Hoosiers. They felt good. We saw where others were having blistering problems with them and we sure didn't want to go through that. So we put the good years back on that didn't feel real, real good. But then the track seemed to come to the good years by the end of the race. And again, this was a crazy day. At Bristol, there were 34 lead changes among 16 drivers, and that was a track record at the time. On one hand, that sounds like it was a really competitive race, but I think at least one of the reasons for there being so many lead changes was because everybody kept wrecking out. (laughs) (laughs) The track was newly repaid, and there was very little practice for that event. And maybe because of that, there were 20 cautions in this race that chewed up 98 laps, all but 20% of the entire race. Well, you have the repaving, which makes the track faster, okay? You have very little practice, which makes the teams less prepared to deal with that track. And what happens? Well, what do you think is going to happen? There's going to be a bunch of cautions. After all that, Rusty somehow managed to beat Darrell Waltrip to the finish line by a car length and a half. Rusty said, I ate dinner Thursday, and when I woke up the next morning, I felt really sick. It was like someone had jumped on my head. Then when I got to the track, I got in the car, and the track was spinning real bad. I hit the brakes. I knew it was vertigo because I've experienced that learning how to fly. You don't want that here. You're going so fast in a bowl, you head, you head, this was you writing it. So yeah, of course there was a typo here. Wade, this is like the third episode in a row with a Steve. Now, I know what you're doing. You're looking for these things. Okay. <laughs> you're looking for these things. You're going so fast in a bowl. You head, your head is spinning away. <laughs> your head is spinning anyway. Move on. Will you move on? Um, I don't know that I can. <laughs> <laughs> I got with Dr. Jerry punch. And we went over to Bristol Memorial Hospital. I got a bunch of medicine from him. And the night before the race, he loaded me up. He said, this will knock it out of you if you're here tomorrow. I woke up in the middle of the night and felt fine. I got to the track and smelled the gas and roasting coffee and felt the breeze. I felt ready to go. Thanks to Dr. Jerry Punch, whom, as you know, Rick, is virtually a NASCAR doctor. I mean, he treated so many drivers for so many things over the years. I got to think that it was part Dr. Jerry Punch and part getting to the racetrack on Sunday morning and smelling the gas and the roasting coffee and feeling the breeze and the thought of maybe somebody else getting into his race car. (laughs) (laughs) That made Rusty Wallace ready to go. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I have given you just a wee little bit of grief the last few weeks over some typos. Yeah, I agree with that. In last week's episode, I mentioned something about Harry Hyde working as Jeff Bodine's crew chief when he won the Daytona 500 in 1986. 
to which my former good friend, Chris Perry, replied on Twitter, oh, Mr. Houston, I got to pick out your typo like you pick on Steve Wade. Jeff Bodine's crew chief in 1986 for the 500 was Gary Nelson and not Harry Hyde. Now, you see the difference between us, Rick? I make typos. I admit it. You pick on me about those typos. But what you've done here is far worse. You got the facts wrong. I rest my case. Well, you know what? Chris and you are absolutely correct. (laughs) Gary Nelson was Jeff Bodine's crew chief in 1986-500. But I replied back to Chris and I tweeted, see what I really doing there. And yes, I accidentally left out the word was. It should have been (laughs) what I was really doing there. So I had a typo in my tweet giving you grief about your typo. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, I tweeted what I really was doing was testing Steve to see if he would pick up on it, Gary being Jeff's crew chief and not Harry, and he didn't. So that one's on him. Yeah, that's it. That's what happened. Don't try to wiggle out of it, okay, Rick? (laughs) You made a mistake with your facts. That's all there is to it. Boy, I'm glad it's time for good tidings and holiday cheer. <laughs> I think we need some around here. <laughs> and here, here's an attaboy to Chris. <laughs> here we go. Chris, trust me, he doesn't need any help. <laughs> Both Richard Petty and Dave Marcus failed to qualify for this race. And Rusty's crew chief, Barry Dodson, asked them, both if they would be willing to be on standby in case Rusty couldn't make it the whole way. Richard said no, but Dave said that he would help out if needed. Dave was there and he was on standby and he was ready to rock and roll if Rusty had to get out of the car. But for Richard, that DNQ broke a string of 45 consecutive starts at Bristol going back to 1966. It also broke Dave Marcus's mark of 297 starts going back 10 years. Now, those are two very long streaks, especially for Richard going all the way back to 1966 that got broken here at Bristol. Well, Rick, I tell you what, you don't expect some drivers not to qualify for a race. And certainly one of them is Richard and Dave is as steady as they come. But it shows things can change. And it may not be for drivers who are accustomed to not having any trouble qualifying. They find themselves in a situation where they don't. And to me, you know, witnessing what went on about that qualifying, it's just remarkable. It's hard to believe that those two gentlemen would not make the race. Well, I think for a lot of people, it was just hard for them to wrap their heads around Richard Petty not being around for a race. That's my point. Exactly. That was very hard for a lot of people to wrap their heads around. And we're going to talk a little more here in just a moment about some of the reaction that the letters to the editor page had about Richard, not making the race at Richmond a week or two earlier in this race, Greg Sachs led five times for a total of 99 laps while driving for buddy Baker, but He, too, experienced problems when he spun between turns three and four, just 25 laps from the end of the race. Now, he did stay on the lead lap, and he finished seventh. So that was not only a good run for Greg Sachs, that was also a great run 
for Buddy Baker's team. And I can tell you, Buddy Baker's team needed something like that because uh, Buddy was really fighting it for a while, trying to keep that team afloat. And he did a good job of it, but having a finish like this is always a boost of confidence and morale of the team. Michael Waltrip lost four laps having to pit for tires at different points in the race because of the Hoosier Goodyear thing, but he made up all but one of them and finished 11th, and he might have done better than that, but he got spun just 20 laps from then. Now, ask me who spun him. <laughs> hey, Rick, who spun him? That would be Daryl Waltrip. <laughs> <laughs> Michael said, I can't believe it. My own brother, that son of a gun. You better be careful saying that. I had a tire going down and I slowed to let him by, but he was already back on the gas and was committed to my back bumper. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> to which Daryl responded, that was a case of one brother being a little more aggressive than the other. I thought he was going to move up and let me go by underneath because he knew I was racing with the leaders. I think he zigged and I zagged. I guess if you're going to spin out somebody, it's best if it's your brother. Is that what Daryl said? That's what so. Daryl said. <laughs> it's all right if you spin out your brother. <laughs> Jeff Bodine finished third in this race while Dick Trickle took fourth. And while Rusty was battling vertigo that weekend, Jeff and Dick's teams had issues of their own during the race. Waddell Wilson was Jeff's team manager and crew chief. And while he was trying to corral a tire during a pit stop, leaning over the pit wall, the guy cleaning Jeff's windshield hit Waddell in the eye with the pole that he was using. Ooh. Waddell goes to the infield care center and has to have four stitches. And obviously it could have been a lot worse, but the story here is that while he's getting the stitches, he's still on the radio to Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> so drivers may be hardcore, but so are their pit crew members. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, they're all baked in the same oven. They want to be competitive and they want to win and nothing is going to stop them. At least Waddell and Jeff could still talk to each other because that was not the case for Dick Trickle <laughs> and crew chief, Jimmy Fennick. Dick said it was good considering our radios went out and we kept making pit stops trying to fix them. We had to make up lost ground every time because I wasn't sure where I was supposed to be on the track. We started out loose, but I couldn't tell Jimmy what was needed. All Jimmy could go on were the little signals I used to communicate with him. <laughs> That's happened more than once, by the way. <laughs> Rusty has vertigo. Waddell Wilson's been whacked on the head with a metal pole. There are 20 cautions, but after the race, this happens. <laughs> <laughs> this was before the teams could bring their actual transporters into the infield. So everybody rented these smaller two ton trucks, like U-Haul trucks or rider trucks or whatever to house all their equipment in the infield after the race, one of the teams <laughs> and the pit pass item did not specify which one, I guess, in order to protect the guilty, <laughs> one team is driving its truck back up out of the infield up that steep bank into the crossover gate to leave and it didn't have the back door secured it came open and here comes everything rolling out and you can just imagine that truck oh, driving up that bank and, sure. and how much stuff is going to come out of the back of it loaded to the rafters or whatever tires tools everything 
that you can imagine. Came no one had, back that time. Oh, no one had ever seen the beat of it. I'll tell you that your stuff was <laughs> everywhere. Which I'm sure that was probably one of the teams that had trouble that day. They'd probably had to fix their car due to a wreck and they'd probably kind of meandered around the racetrack and had a tough day or whatever. And then that happens. That's right. <laughs> what a Bristol race that was. Good <laughs> Lord. You name it, it happened. <laughs> Bristol's Bush Series race was postponed until Monday by weather, and Rick Wilson won it. There was a restart with nine laps to go, and Rick Mast got under Rick Wilson as they entered the first turn. Rick Wilson was able to clear Rick Mast in turn four, and that was that. And Rick Mast was sick with the flu on the day of the race. And still he raced. I go back to my race. Go back, man. (laughs) Don't do anything to stay in those cars. Rick Wilson said, I couldn't believe he had gotten there, but it didn't worry me. He got up under me, but I knew my car was so good that I could get back by him. Dell Earnhardt parked his car after running just 33 laps during this Monday rain delayed race. NASCAR had ordered his crew to remove a flapping piece of sheet metal from the right front fender. And rather than fixing it, Dale Earnhardt went home. (laughs) Dale said, we're done. (laughs) They said the fender was flopping too much. We didn't want to fix it. So I parked it. You get the sense that Dale did not want to be there. No, (laughs) he absolutely did not want to be there that day. Don't know what he had going on, but he did not want to be there that day. And Steve, it was back in July when we talked about Dale getting parked early in another Bush series race at Charlotte after quote unquote contact with Phil Parsons in a 1991 Bush series race at Charlotte. So I think old Dale might've had some sort of deal worked out with Robert black or NASCAR or somebody (laughs) that if he didn't want to be there, he'd get black flagged. And that was going to be all she wrote. (laughs) (laughs) Well, perhaps if you were Dale Earnhardt in that day, you could get away with that sort of thing. Dale Jarrett's Bush series car sustained a lot of damage during practice on Friday when the metal gate at the start finish line swung open unexpectedly. Did I say it was a weird weekend at Bristol or what? DJ said, Harry Gant was running in front of me. And as he went by the gate, it just flew open and I hit it. Wham. (laughs) That just totaled one nice race car. I don't think we can fix it. We don't have another short track car either. And Steve, I did not know this because it had changed by the time I started coming around, but Bush series teams were not allowed to use backup cars at that time. I did not know that. That was an economic measure. Oh yeah, absolutely. If you damaged a car in practice or qualifying, you had to either fix it or not race. And DJ's team couldn't fix this one. So they went home. Come to think of it. Bristol didn't have a lot of luck with crossover gates in the Bush series. (laughs) Did they? (laughs) There was DJ in the crossover gate at the start finish line. There was Michael Waltrip in the crossover gate in turn two. And then there was Mike Harmon and the crossover gate in turn two. So yeah. And as we've talked about the crossover gate 
came into play in that incident at Bristol where the stuff spilled out of the back of the truck. That was right at the crossover gate. <laughs> at last, there were a lot of letters to the editor in this issue with people complaining about TV coverage. Oh, you think? <laughs> I think that is absolutely hysterical because the more things change, the more they stay the same. The more they stay the same. Atta boy, Rich. You're exactly <laughs> right about fans and television. <laughs> if I had a NASCAR gene and I could make three wishes, number one would be the same vault getting digitized in archive. Number right. two would be the pace car. Oh, no. <laughs> number three would be every single person who complains about TV coverage or announcers has to go broadcast a race. Well, Rick, I think you hit on something there. I would dearly love to see some of these experts. If they know so much about it, broadcast a race. Have at it. There you go. There you go, Rick. I think that is a stroke of genius. <laughs> and it pains me to say that. <laughs> Steve, I was speechless for just a second. I didn't know how to respond to that. I was in shock. <laughs> anyway, there were a lot of letters to the editor in this issue complaining about TV coverage. But there were also several concerning Richard Petty fell into qualified Richmond. The letters were mostly in support of Richard. But. But. And there's a big one. Lori Davis of Charlotte, North Carolina. And Lori, if you're out there listening, this is what you had to say. Richard Petty missed the race at Richmond. Big deal. This happens to other drivers all the time. But this is the king, you say. Does this mean he should get special treatment? No. Richard sure showed the racing world what a spoil sport he was when he was interviewed. He believes that since he's been racing for 30 years and has been in over a thousand races, he deserves preferential treatment. J.D. McDuffie has been around for almost that long, yet when he does not make the field, he receives no special treatment. He just packs up and goes home like any other driver would do. Wake up, Richard. The entire sport of racing does not revolve around you. Hey, Lori, oh. come on. Don't hold back. Make your point. <laughs> Holy cow. Well, she's right. <laughs> I'm afraid she's right. I mentioned that earlier when uh, Richard and Dave had their qualifying problems, you don't expect that. And it really is stunning to think the drivers of that caliber would not qualify for a race. But that doesn't mean that they deserve any special treatment. They don't. You know what? I Honestly, I agree with you, but only to a certain extent. A lot of people at that time still came to a race to see Richard Petty on the racetrack. That is true. And so therefore I can understand why NASCAR did eventually come up with the past champions provisional. And I think that was a good move. And I also think that that past champions provisional was used and abused and we won't name names, but it was used and abused by it was. a driver or two. So there has to be some kind of happy medium there. Oh, I think so. But all in all, what NASCAR was doing was trying to please the fans by letting them see their favorites, the superstars, race 
at any means they could do it. Well, they did it with the past champions provisional. And as you said, that could and was abused. Lori was not a lone voice in the wilderness. This came from Jennifer Divers from Roanoke, Virginia. Your old stomping ground. Yes, indeed. You didn't have a pen name or anything, did you? (laughs) No. (laughs) No. Certainly wouldn't be Jennifer Divers. (laughs) (laughs) Jennifer wrote, when Petty made the comment in Grand National Scene and elsewhere, when you make a living at racing and they won't let you make it, it's tough. Did he think that since he is such a quote unquote wonderful driver that NASCAR would bend the rules and let him race? Although Mr. Petty is worshiped by many and has 200 victories, he's no different than any other driver trying to make a living on the circuit. Furthermore, Mr. Petty probably has more money than some drivers would ever dream of having. If he thinks he is being slighted by NASCAR, then maybe he should consider retirement. Oh, that's heavy. (laughs) That is heavy. And Steve, I understand that no one is going to be universally liked. But in my mind, Richard Petty is as close as NASCAR has ever come to a universally liked competitor. To hear such pointed criticism of Richard Petty It is kind of jarring, man. It looks so unusual to see anybody go after Richard like that. Fans of NASCAR are intensely loyal to the sport, and they have their beliefs and they have their thinking about how the sport should be conducted. And with these two letters, Rick, we're really seeing what that means and how they feel about the sport. They make their point. Don't argue with a race fan. (laughs) Well, Steve, I know that this might come as a shock to you, but not everybody agreed with what I had to say in the paper over the years. I was not universally accepted at that oh, scene. Can you oh, believe I mean, that? Well, yeah. But I, <laughs> take heart in the fact, Rick, that I was not either. I knew it. <laughs> Hey, I'm John Dodson. Hey, I'm Mike Beam. Hi, fans. I'm Travis Carter. Hello, everybody. This is Ronnie Thomas. Hi, I'm Ricky Craven. And you're listening to a couple of my buddies on the Scene Vault podcast. Steve, this podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway. America's racing show place. And I mentioned that Randy Ridgeway had signed up on Patreon and like so many others, Randy sent along a note of encouragement when he signed up for Patreon. And Steve, I don't know if you remember, but when you and I sat down with Carrie Tharp to announce the special commemorative issue a couple of years ago, I read a tweet and it was from Randy and Randy had tweeted something to the effect of, If this is a commemorative issue, I will hitchhike my ass all the way to Darlington for it. I remember. Yes, indeed. And that was Randy. And I will never forget Randy for that. And I don't know if he was actually there. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if he actually did hitchhike to Darlington, but he has been a very loyal supporter over the years. He signed up for Patreon and he also sent along this note. And Steve, you've got to hear this one to believe it. 
And Randy wrote, I've joined Patreon to help support this project. This has really been fun for me. I grew up in the 1990s, and as a kid, I learned how to read with scene. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's how unbelievable. Co- how cool That's is that? I learned how to read with scene. My love of the sport has been a 24-7 obsession. I remember watching Steve on TV with Ned Jarrett. But beyond the nostalgia, what I absolutely love about this is that I feel like I'm able to travel through time and find myself in the garage at Martinsville in 1979 or the press box at Daytona in 1984. The stories and how they are told are just so vivid and detailed. You and Steve do a wonderful job painting a picture from your perspectives, as do your guests. I've been able to grow a deep appreciation for drivers I didn't care for and have learned to respect drivers I don't care for today. If nothing else, these stories are compelling. We all know the story of Dale Earnhardt, and yet I still learned something new about him. I love hearing from the journeyman drivers who didn't have their time in the spotlight. Between you and Steve and Dale Jr. with his podcast, the preservation of NASCAR history is in extremely capable hands and really hope NASCAR one day fully supports it. I wish you both continued success, not only with this project, but with life as well. Could that not be any Mm. nicer? I tell you the words (laughs) tell me, I can't think of anything else to say, except thank you very much. Randy is really appreciated. Randy, like Steve, I appreciate it. I don't know what else to say. I've made a living for 30 years with words and somehow I I can't find the right words to say how much your encouragement and so many other people's encouragement mean to me that you've kept us going during some pretty difficult times in the past year or so. And I appreciate that a lot. So if you do have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at rick at the same vault.com or Steve at Steve at the same vault.com. And don't forget your questions for Kyle Petty. No, that's <laughs> going to be good. I know the folks are going to have some great questions. And again, email your video to Rick at the same vault.com. Janie's coming in. Hold on. Okay. What are you doing? Interrupting my podcast. <laughs> Did you hear what she called me? No, but I'm sure you deserved it. <laughs> he said, no, I didn't hear, but I'm sure you deserved it. 